0: teaching series called The Songs of Christmas, and we're going to spend extra nerdy time with some history, and we're going to look at the history of some of our um, uh, Christmas songs and hymns and look into their origins and and the texts in which they're pulling from or inspired from. It's going to be all sorts of fun because... um, because it is just great to dig into history and play and nerdism. It's um, lots of fun for me, and you all can pretend if you don't like it uh, for my sake. It'll be great. We're going to have lots of fun. We have all sorts of little snippets, though, of history uh, this morning, so we're going to get to this in a moment. We're going to uh, unpack Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Uh, in a minute, but we first want to begin with today is actually, though, the last Sunday of Pentecost, which can feel like, wow, that seemed like it was a while ago, but this is actually the last Sunday of Pentecost. It is known on the liturgical calendar as Christ the King Sunday. So this morning is Christ the King Sunday. It's a feast day so we 're having a feast. well done we 're actually knocking that down well. Um, but the thing is this this day, Christ the King Day and the calendar, has some kind of heavy uh, historical conflict to it. So I want to unpack that a little bit, and then we 're going to get into this um, because this conflict within the calendar, if you will, and how this all got started um, It's hit a bit more tension just in the last several years. Um, Because uh, Christ the King Sunday was first proclaimed by Pope Pius XI in 1925. Not all that long ago, I would say. Just under 100 years ago. Now, here's the thing that's fascinating. The intention was to reassert Jesus' lordship... That's the point, Christ the King. So the Pope wanted to reassert Jesus' lordship over the rise of what was happening in Europe of nationalism and authoritarianism and European politics. Now again, we're talking about European politics, but see, the Pope signed a number of significant treaties, one of which was the Lateran Treaty between Italy and the Vatican, Signed by Benito Mussolini on behalf of the Italian government and then the Pope, upon ratification of the treaty, the papacy uh, recognized the state of Italy with Rome as its capital. Italy, in return, recognized papal sovereignty over the Vatican City, which was all of 109 acres. It's really small. We just were there. Sarah and I did a, spent a day there, quite something. But here's the thing, why the Pope was doing this is because there was the rise of Mussolini and a military leader in Germany named Adolf Hitler. The Pope was trying to um, calm things down, but what happened is then you have this uh, torrid affair between politics leveraging religion to assert dominance. Dominance. The Pope's goal and what his papal legacy is was working for global peace. That's what this Pope was trying to do. But by marrying religion and politics, this volatile relationship ended in a very, very what we would say messy divorce. That was back then Pope Pius XI died in Rome in 1939 amidst a divided world in which he was going for peace, a world that sadly does not seem all that long ago now when we consider whether the lessons from then have been learned. Anyone? (laughs) Oh boy. Um, Now, so although next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, we are beginning Advent this morning, Uh, I love This season of Advent. I love it. It's intended to slow us down and think about as we head toward Christmas, many people are speeding up and running around and it's a season of hustle and bustle yet Advent is meant to slow down and anticipate the celebration of Christ among us as one of us. I would argue that this is the most radical claim of the Christian story. The divine becoming flesh and blood and living as one of us alongside of us. Which is the divine affirmation that the material, flesh and blood, is sacred and holy and to be given honor and respect. And this is announced and proclaimed while being set to the soundtrack of song, one of which known as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, let's get ready for our next little snippet, a little lighter maybe than the first of some history. Uh, This should be lots of fun. This song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was written and composed by Charles Wesley in 1739, originally titled Hymn for Christmas Day. And it was included in a collection called Hymns and Sacred Poems. But it more famously appeared in 1840, 100 years after the original publication, when Felix Mendelssohn composed a cantata using an adapted version by George Whitefield from 1758 to commemorate Johannes Gutenberg's invention of the printing press. 400 years earlier whitefield george whitefield and wesley along with charles's brother john are considered the founders of the methodist wesleyan movement which i know because actually some of you don't know this i am ordained wesleyan i'm not reformed i'm always about reforming though so it's okay Um, It's not a secret, kind of fun. Now, here's the thing, Charles Wesley's original version, the original version that he wrote goes like this, hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. Universal nature say, Christ the Lord is born today. That's the original version. The version we know and just sang is George Whitefield and Felix Mendelssohn's mashup. So, thank you. If you, this is why, now, I just have a little bit of fun because the traditionalists are like, I wish we would sing the Christmas hymns. We should sing, Heart the herald angels sing. You're not singing the original. <laughs> You're singing an updated version of it. Oh, it's so fun. I just wrecked some people. They're like, oh, no. Now. We sing this version. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumphs of the skies. With angelic host proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Giddy up. Courtesy of me. That's what that's trying to say. We add a little additional lyric. Because there is this goodness hum to it. Yes, yes, yes. I find it fascinating, though, because we're singing this adaptation already set to a cantata composition that was celebrating technological invention of the printing press, which transformed our world. And those who are familiar with Charles Wesley Version, if anybody, was anyone like, yeah, yeah, Charles Wesley Version, I knew that. Oh, see, oh, come on. Even Charles Wesley's version, though, is we're singing what originally came from the Lucan gospel, right? Which inspired Wesley to write his version. So then... We're going to spend some time digging into the songs, the history, have some fun with it. But we're going to actually go, where are they pulling from? And what is going on in the text, in the scriptures that they are either alluding to or are pulled from? This will help us dig into context. And when we dig into the birth narrative, the context of the gospel birth narratives... Oh, we're going to have some fun. I'm going light this morning, and as we move through Advent, though, we're going to get thicker and deeper into the context. And here's the thing. I have been accused of, rightfully, of upsetting many precious nativity sets and Western American Christmas traditions, and I will do so again this year. It will be so much fun context because context will do that now let's go ahead I want to say a word of prayer then we're going to sink into Luke's text and off we go gracious God what a gift to gather what a gift to gather as your body the church to take some time and center ourselves on this amazing story of your love coming among us to be with us in flesh and blood, to walk with us, to teach us, to guide us, to live with us, to suffer with us, to embrace us as we are, but never leaving us there. God, we bless you for this time that we can do so. As we sink in, I pray that the meditation and posture of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you, our Lord, our Christ the King, on this day. Amen. Amen, amen. Okay, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Here we go. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. Uh Uh-oh. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place in the guest room. Now in that same region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they wet their tunics. That's my version. The real one was they were terrified. Okay, sorry, I didn't know that I put kept that in the slides. <laughs> oh, I have fun when I'm preparing. Um, <laughs> Oh man, that's just a good time. Can we? All right. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. And Mary treasured all these things, all these words, and pondered them on her heart." the shepherds returned glorifying God and pra- glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as it had been told them now my initial reflections on such a wildly profound and ethemic text are one taking note that you think in the next few weeks churches all around the world will center on this text at some point That's incredible. And two, the kid in me cannot help but notice how calm and quiet people are upon hearing this news. We just read about the most boisterous singing Angels, thousands upon thousands of angels, singing with a giddy-up that shakes the heavens, and we sit politely quiet in a youth center. What? So, let's try a couple different translations and see if that helps us. Otherwise, we're going to have to call the praise police. Now then, let's try the voice translation or paraphrase. At that moment, the first heavenly messenger was joined by thousands of other messengers, a vast heavenly choir. They praised God, the heavenly choir, to the highest heights of the universe, glory to God and on earth, peace among all people who bring pleasure to God. Okay. Yeah, okay, we're getting somewhere now. I find this fantastic. Another translation of the Bible called the Jubilee Bible. Uh, we got to do that. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill in man." Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> Woo! See this this text has layers upon layers of goodness and celebration and it is, though, dizzying in its juxtaposition of power and poverty. This text is radical. I can only imagine the original audience would have to take a nap after absorbing such proclamation and party. Like just gotta take a nap after sitting in that. So we're gonna start. Unpack this from the top. Ready? Okay. Verses one and two. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Corinius was governor of Syria. Syria. Now, we're going to spend much time, much more time with Mr. Augustus later in December. We're going to spend some time sinking into uh, this Caesar, an emperor. But it's important first that we'll note that Caesar was the most powerful person in the known world at that time. Under Caesar Augustus, he ruled from 27 BCE to 14 CE. Rome shifted from being a republic into being the world's largest and most powerful empire with the Caesar as the head. Next, it says that he decreed that a census should be taken of the entire world. But, get this, this census is not attested to anywhere else outside of the Gospels. Go ahead and read all the history you want. You will not find a census that was attested to for the whole world to take. Rome registered residents primarily to determine taxes, and they did not undertake a single empire-wide census. Nor did they require people to return to their natal homes to register. There is no external evidence for a Roman census under Herod the Great, During whose lifetime Jesus was born at this time. And get this in Jewish thought, counting people directly is contrary to divine will. Counting people directly is contrary to divine will. And the Western American church of the last 80 years goes, uh oh, we take attendance every Sunday. That's funny. I find that funny, but it's in the text. First Chronicles twenty-one one and two. Um, so, First Chronicles: Satan, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many there are and can put together an army. That's why I'm doing it. Who incited David to do this? The Satan, Ha Satan, the deceiver. Is that a good thing then? (laughs) I need you to stop right here. I'm having lots of fun. That's crazy. Um, There's a lot to be said there. Context is everything though. Luke is up to something. So what Luke is doing is he has an agenda. We have a name for it. He is setting up a jarring jarring juxtaposition of power through fantastical storytelling. Luke is doing something here. So, Miss Margaret, your favorite Sunday school teacher and flannel board expert, probably wasn't very helpful for this part of the story. And again, I'm sorry, but Luke is not interested in telling a journalistic perspective of history in which we gather around the fireplace for a precious nativity scene. And that might be a lot for some of us to hear. I do understand that if we're like, wait, what's happening right now? So... Here's the thing. If you're getting a little worked up inside, I encourage you to mail your angry letters to this address, the Fundamentalist Center of Control and Certitude, Care of Ignore ignore All Context, No Questions Allowed Avenue, Dallas, Texas. (laughs) I know, Wally, that's just naughty. That is naughty Wally doing that, and I understand. But to get to this, we have to ignore the context, and now all of a sudden we're like, well, how did we develop all this stuff? Well, some in part is ignoring context. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Um, and I had fun making that up. <laughs> now, if we can relax, we're just going to, we'll quote the live action uh, Grinch that stole Christmas, lighten up dude it's Christmas, right? Okay. Now, back to the text. The census, the census that's spoken about accomplishes the goal, what the, what the census does. Luke knows, I, by putting this in there, of getting Mary and Joseph from uh, Nazareth in the Galilee region to Bethlehem, right so it does this Bethlehem and that's crucial because Bethlehem is the city where King David was born and Mary is going to give birth to a son her firstborn which we said in our Genesis series if you were around for our Genesis series the Hebrew word bechor firstborn right and it's contextually understood that you would take your bechor your firstborn and they would be dedicated to God So Luke knows that all of this context is setting up this story. Are you hanging in there? Okay. The Hebrew Scriptures are always dancing underneath the New Testament. Hebrew Scriptures are dancing underneath the text, pleading with the audience to be paying attention to the story of the Exodus and the great longing for rescue and redemption. All underneath this. Exodus chapter 13 verse 2. Consecrate to me every Behor male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me whether human or animal. This was built into the way they did life. And Exodus 4.22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my b'chor. Oh, huh, interesting. My firstborn son. God saying, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, this is how we un- understand things. Excuse me. Luke is setting up a juxtaposition of power, struggle between Caesar, right? Mention Caesar, and the Roman Empire, Up against the hope and anticipation of the coming Messiah, the Christ, the rescuer and savior for all people. You have this setup that Luke is doing. Then we are told that Mary gives birth to Jesus, verse 7 and laid him in a manger because there was no place in the guest room. Once again, sorry for Miss Margaret from Sunday School, but the text does not have an innkeeper. Anybody ever go, oh yeah, and this is on the flannel board, we put up the innkeeper who said, no vacancy at my Motel 6, Mary and Joseph. That's, no, not there, not in the text. We're going to take apart the nativity scene week by week. It'll be precious. Uh, once again, context gives us a picture of the common first century Jewish home. First picture, please. Uh oh, are we going to do that? And then we had that with it. Okay. Well, let me tell you the picture of a first century home, you have two floors of this home. No, pi- they're not in there? They're on there, but they won't be up here probably. Okay. I'll just explain them to you. You have two levels, first century home. The upper level, like you would come in and there's a ladder in the picture. You climb up it. That level, the upper room, is where the kind of living takes place. The people would sleep and you would see kind of a kitchen thing set up in the picture. The lower level was used for housing the animals, And was used as a guest room when you had visitors. But Luke has already told us that a census has been ordered. So finding enough room to give birth to a child is going to be a very dicey behavior. Oh good, wonderful, they came up. So you can see um, the upper level of this first century home. This is where the living would take place. Down below you actually, (laughs) it's so great because it's in a museum just so we know, and the sheep down here is standing still because it's not real. Okay? Do we get that? But you have... This is where the animals would be housed. But when you're calling a census and everybody is rushing to their hometown, relatives are asking, can we stay with you as we come and register overnight, things would be extra crowded. And if someone comes and says, hey, I'm I'm pregnant, I'm going to give birth, and they go, we don't have the space for that kind of production. (laughs) (laughs) Okay? So then, uh, next picture. Uh, whatever, if it comes up. Oh, there it goes. So, so the upper level. see, this is like this is the second floor or whatever, but this is where most of the living would take place. They would sleep, just kind of roll out their cuts, and then up above on the roof, the roof is flat, and they might do their cooking there. Cooking would be outside anyways, because we're not lighting flames in the open wooded uh, and hay, straw, whatever, all this thing. home. But they're up top, they would have gardens. Uh, on top of the roof, uh, possibly. But this is how this rolls out. So Lucas simply letting us know that there was not room enough in the guest room for the privacy needed for a birth. So some scholars and historians place the birth of Jesus in a cave, which is a common place for shepherds to keep their sheep and goats at night. I have twice now visited what a cave like this would be like in Bethlehem as a Dave and Sue and Terry, Doug and Lori. We went into a cave in Bethlehem and actually got to see what that looks like where they would house sheep and goats and likely where they understood traditionally actually where the birth would be. The point is the birth is not taking place place in a palace. Either way, the birth is not taking place in a palace chock full of wealth and opulence. This is not a regal birth, which Luke further clues us into by saying, another sign for you all is this manger. So verse 12, this will be a sign. Telling us, for you, you will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. Telling the shepherds, here's your sign. You're going to find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. This is simply a feeding trough for animals. Which carries all sorts of symbolism popping within the context. New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine points out that placing the newborn Jesus in a feeding trough associates him with the symbol of food, anticipating what we will call the Last Supper or the Eucharist, which Jesus will knit himself to. Are you with me? The narrative's already saying this will be sustenance for the saving of the world. Wooey! Come on, Luke. It's brilliant. Now, we're going to jump to the scene of the actual proclamation of this birth. Verse 8 of chapter 2. Now, in that same region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you what? Good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God is coming into the world and this, I mean, we just stop there. God is coming into the world and the preferred method of announcing it is this. You have powerful and majestic angels performing a cosmic concert of goodness, and they appear to who? Shepherds? shepherds? This is what you're going to do, O God. You're going to announce it to shepherds. Once again, Luke is offering a brilliant juxtaposition of power and poverty. There are several tasty morsels of symbolism baked into this announcement. First, shepherds were universally considered lowly. First, we'll go to Genesis chapter 46. 33 and 34, when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. You go back in the story and Pharaoh says, oh, You want to be among us? Here, go have that area. We don't want you close to us because we think you're gross. Are you you with me? So the ancient Egyptians are a bit, maybe feel like, well, that's a bit snooty. So they find shepherds to be detestable. What about the Hebrew people? One of the most... Brilliant scholars we have, Kenneth Bailey, who has lived and taught the New Testament for over 40 years in Egypt, Lebanon, Jerusalem, and Cyprus, points out how the Jewish rabbis saw the shepherds as unclean and of low status. While also noting this, from their point of view, the rabbis, if the child was truly the Messiah, the parents would reject the shepherds if they tried to visit them. Ah, uh, no way, that's gross. You're not getting anywhere near this child if we actually believe this child is of something special. (laughs) But could the Hebrew story sneak in something subversive to the typical power dynamics? Is that what might be going on here? Who is the greatest prophet of the Hebrew people? Moses, before he becomes the powerful prophet that leads the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt, he is called by God while living as a simple shepherd. For 40 years of faithfulness in caring for and leading simple sheep, God knew he could trust Moses to care for and lead the Hebrew people in what is known as the great exodus. Could that be what's going on? Who is the most honored king of the Hebrew people? David. Before David starred in stories of defeating the giant Goliath or becoming Israel's great king, he was first a simple shepherd. Maybe it was David's fidelity in providing for and protecting his simple sheep that confirmed to God he can trust David to provide for and protect the Hebrew people. Are you with me? So, when the majesty and power of the heavenly angels are assembled into this transcendent, massive choir, they not only sing the praises of the divine, they also call for leaders who will honor and proclaim the birth of the Christ. In this, they call on simple shepherds. It's brilliant. And really, really subversive. And such a teacher for us today. Because the king of the cosmos has come for all people. So the question is, becomes, if you are going to come for all people, then who would have the compassion and character to announce this bonkers great news of joy to those who have been looked down on and left out by society's powerful and elite? Shepherds. Those who can grasp what it feels like to be considered Misfits. That's who we're going to announce this news to. This is in the text the upside down countercultural ways of the kingdom of God, which have been mystifying societies from way back then, right up to and through our day today. And we need this transformative announcement more than ever because, yes, Christmas is a time of family and celebration and joy, but it's also a season where depression is at its highest and loneliness at its most lethal. So in the face of a pandemic of loneliness and depression, who will take serious the radical proclamation of welcome? Could could the church be a people who are known for being the good news announcement that love has been born among us and has come to rescue each and every one of us? Would the church be that? Because if Jesus came to and for the likes of shepherds, then who could possibly be outside of divine love and embrace? Are you with me? So what if the church were to be the shepherds of this good news? What if the church were to shepherd this news to the couple whose marriage is hanging on by a thread? What if the church were to be shepherds of this good news to the addicts, the agnostics, and the atheists? What if the church so got this ancient redemptive announcement that they were absolutely giddy to shepherd this message of love to all people? Imagine if you were struggling hurting, fighting, or maybe you're full-on falling apart. And there was a community of people who looked you in the eyes and said, wow, you are exactly who God loves and receives. And I know this to be true because I have been loved and received by this God. So I'd be bonkers thrilled if you would walk with me into this good news together. It's a transformative gift. We can experience it in community. What if we would do that? Maybe. Maybe the single mom would rediscover hope and joy. Maybe the orphan and displaced would find a family and a firm foundation. Church, it was the fidelity and simplicity of the shepherd, the marginalized and mistreated by empire, Who were chosen as God's instrument of grace to make this announcement? (laughs) Honestly. I believe if the church gave its attention and energy to embodying and living out the humble, drenched in awe and wonder ways of the shepherd, there wouldn't be any silly discussions about keeping Christ in Christmas. Because of course you can't take Christ out of Christmas, but you could choose not to see the Christ in the eyes of in the lives of the shepherd like people who are all around us. You could choose to do that, and that would be tragic. So, can we be a people who create space at the table to announce guess what? Heaven is on its way, and there is space and room in a chair at the table. For you. The divine announcement of good news, of great joy for all people came to shepherds. That's who the message was entrusted to. Lowly shepherds. God says, I can trust you to make this announcement, you you got to think God knows shepherds making this announcement. How many people will go, I'm not listening to that from you? Oh. And yet this humble family hears it and it says Mary treasured it in her heart. And she's like, wow, something absolutely Cosmic bonkers amazing is happening right here, right now, not just among us, but through us. And shepherds get it. And they're going to go and announce this. I wonder if we'll pay attention to that. I wonder if that will transform even the church today about how we embrace, about the stories of every person. And we don't just go, oh, you're a shepherd. We go, I bet you have a story. And when I hear that, I bet that could help me look in your eyes and see then the spark of the divine first and foremost. May that be true of us today gracious god i bless you for coming among us to be with us in such profound humility but it isn't that you just came among us to us to be with us in humility you invited asked called The simple of society. Those who actually were rejected by the larger society. You entrusted to them this announcement here I am, heaven is on its way, it's being born among you. Will you have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open to this? God, may our hearts be open. I bless you for giving us this message, for living this message, for inviting us into this, may we be open to your love, your grace, your compassion, your mercy, and your absolutely bonkers good news. Even now, even here, even in this moment, may we be open to your good news of great joy, because it is for every single one of us. You are good, God. And I bless you. May we be a church, God.